to you. I'm Al Cresta. I think normally when people think of liturgy, uh, they are thinking, of course, of uh, the ritual, the highly structured way in which we come together for the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Um, and while people, of course, expect that there's treasures for them uh, in the Mass, they don't necessarily think of liturgy as a source of mysticism. Uh, mysticism seems not to be so structured or ritualized, right? So there's this uh, surface con- conflict between liturgy and mysticism. My guest, Dr. David Fagerberg, is professor of liturgical studies in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. He's been spending decades thinking on these things and writing on them and instructing on them. He's the author of several books, including Liturgical Mysticism, Liturgical Dogmatics, and others. And it's my great pleasure to welcome him to the program. Professor Fagerberg, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, let's begin with this, I think, widespread notion that somehow liturgy uh, is of a different species than uh, mystical. Liturgical experience is somehow different than mystical experience, and somehow the never the twain shall meet. Uh, how widespread is that, would you say? Yeah, I think it's so, uh, probably for a couple of reasons. One is uh, that most baptized laity think that there's something saved for others that does not uh, belong to them. Hmm. And that uh, what uh, we peasants are supposed to do is uh, work on our asceticism, but there are certain graced souls who uh, fly in the atmosphere high overhead, and uh, they get an exceptional kind of a grace. (laughs) Well, my... uh, work had been, as you said at the very beginning, trying to connect liturgy and theology, liturgical theology, as something that happens in the liturgy, and that means the uh, assembly is a uh, liturgical, is a theological corporation. This uh, idea I got from the two mentors I had, uh, one living and was my uh, doctor advisor, Father Aidan Kavanaugh. The mm-hmm. other died a year after I started studying, and I never met him except in his works, and that's Father Alexander Schmemann. Yeah, the Russian Orthodox uh, theologian. Right. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. And both of them uh, give the sense that uh, the person who's baptized uh, should be open to this theological uh, view of the world. Kavanaugh created a personification of such a person and would call her Mrs. Murphy. <laughs> well, I thought that uh, Mrs. Murphy is a theologian, though not of the academic variety. Mm-hmm. And my next book was trying to understand the uh, work that goes on in her soul, and I think of her as an ascetic, though not of the monastic variety. Mm-hmm. And so this book uh, gets me to the point of thinking of Mrs. Murphy as a mystic, yeah. even if not of the uh, extraordinary or exceptional variety. And when I was thinking about that, I found various authors uh, in the Western tradition who uh, say the very thing. Um, I could group all of their quotations by saying that the mystical life is the normal crowning of the Christian life. Hmm. And the Christian life is uh, what we're baptized into. If you live in the mystical body of Christ, why shouldn't I be calling you a mystic? Yeah, yeah. 
what is meant by mystic? Uh, I think it's uh, what Paul means when he says 164 times in Christ. In Christ. <laughs> I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. Right. Yeah. Um, that's the intended pun behind being a member of the mystical body makes you a mystic. You are a spiritual person if you are filled with the Holy Spirit. So I don't know where we get our idea of um, spiritual, some uh, television show of uh, kind of floating around. Uh, <laughs> spiritual means of the Holy Spirit. Right. And mystical means that you're in Christ's mystical body and he is your head. No, that's that's beautiful. And again, St. Paul's use of the phrase in Christ. I was just, the reason I, I chuckled about it, because I, actually I was speaking to the conference, and that was a phrase that I spent some time discussing. Uh, and I I don't think we give, I mean, it's, it's such an unusual phrase. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even sure what kind of parallels we have for in our usual conversation. I mean, as close as I get to, you know, somebody... Uh, I love, uh, or a, a theologian who I admire, uh, or a politician who I think highly of. Uh, I don't say that I'm in that person, you know. Yeah. No matter how close yeah. we get. What is? Um, I have I have a uh, historical uh, union with George Washington. I have an ideological union with uh, Wittgenstein, who influenced my thinking, or Socrates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have an imaginative union with Aslan, <laughs> but one has a mystical union with Christ, right. and uh, it's different. You, you, the reason you can't think of another analogy is because there is no other analogy. This is unique to uh, Jesus' uh, identity in us. It was only about um, five years ago I came across an address by um, then-Cardinal Ratzinger, in which he used the phrase sequela Christi, hmm. or a sequel to Christ. Interesting. Uh, more than just imitating him, like a baby duckling imitating the mom going into the pond, we are to become a sequel of Christ. And I think this is uh, expressed in the West under categories of um, habitual grace, sanctifying grace. It's expressed in the East under the category of deification. Ah. And that Eastern Orthodox uh, material has uh, had its influence on me. So I think of a uh, mystical person as somebody who is in the process of becoming uh, more deified as one grows from the image of God into the likeness of God. Yes, yes. I remember when I was still serving as an evangelical Protestant pastor, how uncomfortable I was with the phrase uh, uh, becoming partakers of the divine nature. I said, yeah. you know, that it's a biblical passage, but at my... At my theology of the salvation or redemption at the time didn't really have room for it. Uh, as yeah. a Catholic, of course, it, it makes all the sense in the world. Um, but I, I came to that through reading Schmemann and other <laughs> Orthodox <laughs> writers. So deification right. is new in the, not new in the West, but it's, it seems to be, there seems to be more reflection on it in the West. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, maybe the West has used the word divinization more. Yeah, okay. uh, of course, it's clear that we don't turn into gods. Right. This isn't pantheism. The best um, illustration that most of the Eastern Fathers use is like putting iron in fire. Hmm. What are the natural properties of iron? It's hard, it's heavy, but then it's cool. But when you put it in fire, it takes on the nature of heat. It takes on the fire's nature of heat. 
Of course, if you removed yourself from uh, the fire of the Holy Spirit, you would slowly cool off, which is why uh, you have to keep steady at this. But uh, it is the case that Christ shares with us. And I was thinking while you were uh, expressing this that what's the hurdle, what is the stumbling block that keeps us from grasping this in Christo uh, properly? I think it's a weak theology of the Incarnation. Yeah. Jesus dropped down from heaven, put on his uh, humanity mask, went around mm-hmm. doing goods. Then in a tag team wrestling match, he slapped the Holy Spirit. And now he's up waiting while the Holy Spirit's active. In fact, uh, <laughs> incarnation is that he assumes our human nature, right. and uh, it is ascended to with uh, Christ to the Father, and that's the uh, first of many brothers and sisters. So we really are uh, kind of weak in our uh, theology of incarnation. Yeah. No, I I agree. I, you make a lot of sense here. Um, in, in, in So in one sense, we can say that the Church, and we as members in Christ of the Church, are an extension uh, of the Incarnation, or is that a dangerous phrase? No, I think that uh, theologians stumble around on words like that. Uh, yeah. I see extension, I see perpetuation. Uh, what what uh, the, the way the Fathers simply put it is that we are to become by grace what Christ is by nature. Hmm. That's good. I like that. Um, what is the... Okay, let's let's just move a little bit here and discuss the role of the priest in this uh, liturgical mysticism. Uh, how are we to regard the priesthood? Um, first recollection is that we're uh, baptized into a royal priesthood, mm-hmm. but I presume you meant the hierarchical ministerial, the ministerial priesthood. Ministerial priesthood, sure, yeah, sure. right. And in that case, um, it fits into one of the images that uh, came to my mind. Uh, there's a book titled Wellspring of Worship by Jean Corbon, who's a uh, Byzantine Catholic author. And he picks up the image in the book of Revelation of liturgy being a river flowing from the throne of God in heaven. And I got to thinking uh, that river flows first into the baptismal font, because that's where we start our life. (laughs) That's good, yeah. But it uh, fills up that baptismal font and spills over its lips into individual souls, individual persons. Now, the ordained ministerial priest has a uh, sacramental identity and function. So I could think about a sacramental liturgy, a liturgy that's expressed in the uh, sacramental life of the church. But then there's a interior personal liturgy going on. Hmm. And uh, that's what the idea of the liturgical mysticism is. Uh, the uh, river of liturgy flows from the heavenly throne, pools up in the church, and then it overflows its lip to flood our own personal lives. So uh, I've been working for a uh, several years on the idea of uh, liturgical theology that asks what happens in liturgy. Yeah. And this book let me uh, slightly change the question, what happens to us in liturgy? In liturgy. Yeah. yeah. The, the priest is simply an instrument in the hands of Christ. So, so, so then that inner uh, liturgy that's going on, is that where we exercise, uh, one area in which we exercise our royal priesthood? Yes. 
and uh, prophet, priest, and king. Those mm-hmm. three offices belong uh, to the baptized as well. Uh, all the, many of the Vatican documents say so. My uh, interest here is to try to make uh, liturgy a slightly thicker term. Um, I start often uh, my uh, course on liturgical theology with the anecdote that I was standing in line uh, at my university dressed in cap and gown, uh, ready to march in for commencement exercises. And the person behind me, knowing that I studied liturgy, said, you must like this sort of thing. (laughs) And it occurred to me that liturgy's got to mean more than that. Hold it there. We'll come back on the other side of the break and pick it up from that story. That's a very good story. My guest, uh, Professor David Fagerberg, uh, author of Liturgical Mysticism. I'm Al Crestle. We'll be right back. I'm Al Cresta. Professor David Fagerberg is professor of liturgical studies in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. He's the author of several books, uh, including Liturgical Mysticism, Liturgical uh, Asceticism, Liturgical Dogmatics, and we are looking in particular at liturgical mysticism. Uh, just before the break, uh, Professor Fagerberg was uh, telling a story. Uh, and if you don't mind recapping that story for us, and we'll continue on from there. Yeah, it's just uh, reminding us that uh, often when people use the word liturgy, they mean excessive pomp and useless formality. (laughs) So uh, uh, another version of it is when uh, somebody heard that I was coming to Notre Dame, they said, oh, you like liturgy. Wait till you see a football game there. (laughs) Uh, To me, uh, ritual without theology does not a liturgy make. Right, right. So my uh, work has been to try to find a theological content to what goes on in liturgy. I think liturgy is the uh, matrix from which uh, theology is born. It uh, gives life to asceticism. It gives uh, mysticism. It's uh, an experience of dogma. So uh, that's my particular approach. Uh, rather than a history of uh, right. what does the, the liturgical theology do? So is is uh, is a liturgy uh, uh, liturgy is a source of theology? Then, yeah, uh, that's in Kavanaugh's language. Uh, liturgy is a primary theology, theologia prima. And people in uh, book-lined offices like I'm sitting in right now, we like to uh, study that thing. Mm-hmm. But liturgical theology is not our product. We don't produce it. Uh, the Church produces this theology in her liturgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Schmemann's language was that liturgy is the ontological condition for theology. Wow. This is where theology occurs. It's a uh, foretaste to it. And the reason is because in the liturgy... The economy of salvation is uh, recapitulated. Uh, you couldn't be there for the first flood. We'll throw a little personal flood just for you here at the baptismal font, and mm-hmm. uh, you can step into the ark. Uh, you couldn't be there at the uh, first exodus here. We'll part the Red Sea and deliver you from slavery to Satan right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't be there at the first Pentecost here. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. In the liturgy, all of this is... Uh, recapitulated, and Christ becomes our head again. Wow. 
And this is such a rich understanding uh, of liturgy. And um, I mean, it, and, and sure, it must be a source of frustration to you that there's not a whole lot, there's not many people out there that are incorporating uh, people into the, the Catholic faith with that understanding of liturgy. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of emphasis on um, the rules. Uh, it's, huh. it's uh, you know, it's, it's the, the, the thing we do. But yeah. for, for your presentation of it, uh, this is where salvation history is recapitulated yeah. uh, in our experience. People, people think that Christ came, that we might have rubrics and have them abundantly. <laughs> uh, liturgy is about life, yeah. and life is about love. And love of God is about being uh, taken into his um, Trinitarian life. Uh, I find that definition of sourcing uh, liturgy in the Trinity in both um, Pius XII's encyclical Mediator Dei. He says that liturgy is the worship that our Redeemer renders to the Father and that we render to our Founder and through Him render to the Heavenly Father. Hmm. And that was a definition that the uh, liturgical movement was working with in its earliest days. Virgil Michael says that the liturgy reaching from God to man and connecting man to God is the action of the Trinity in the Church. The Church and her liturgy partakes of the life of the divine society of these three persons in God. Well, that means uh, that liturgy is done ritually, formally, rubrically. Uh, these are rules of the games so that the... Uh, chess pieces stay in place so that the uh, liturgical cult is going on but that's just a um, carrier one of my um, images i like to think of is that the what people usually think of as liturgy is only the one-tenth of the iceberg they can see above the water line mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but i'm curious what that's connected to yeah yeah there's a connection between cult and cosmos between sacred and profane between church and the world between liturgy, theology, asceticism, mysticism. Yeah. Is this... There's, I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's just that there's a huge um, reality underneath it, yes. which is uh, frequently overlooked. Is this present in Sacrosanctum Concilium? I'd say so. Uh, first um, paragraphs are insisting that uh, for this to happen, Christ must be always present. He's right. the priest, he's the victim, he's the sacrifice, he's the sacrificer. Uh, and Christo is written all over uh, that document, yes. Mm -hmm. I, I read through uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium again uh, just last week, uh, and it, it's been a while since I looked at it. So yeah. uh, it struck me again that uh, the uh, bishops... Uh, uh, we're definitely thinking of, uh, in some way, reforming the liturgy in order to achieve this objective of uh, conscious, active full conscious, active participation. Uh, what did they mean by that? Do you know? They want liturgy to affect us. Mm -hmm. Uh, they want uh, the partaking of liturgy to spill out uh, over the rest of the week and uh, fill our lives. Uh, as I try to make a point in one of the mysticism chapters, it uh, liturgy quickens 
the grace that was bestowed on us in um, baptism. There is a um, was an interesting discovery by me when I read a uh, 1930 pamphlet from the liturgical press about the liturgical movement. Right, so this is in the early days, and they're trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line, I, I bet your listeners uh, as well, had gotten the idea that liturgical movement means moving the liturgy. And when the conservatives get their hands on the football, they want to move it down to one end zone. And when the liberals get their hands on the football, they want to move it down to the other end. Let's have a liturgical movement. Where should we move the liturgy to? But in this um, booklet, uh, there's an anonymous author, and then Virgil Michael, and then Martin Hellriegel. And uh, they say things like, uh, movement is rightly understood, as the words indicate, a movement towards the liturgy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, uh, we must thank God for liturgical movement, which means movement towards the liturgy, the fountains of the Savior, towards Christ's life-imparting mysteries. And when we speak of a liturgical movement, it's because for centuries we've been too far removed from this divine furnace right. and all its penetrating sacred fire. We've always felt some of its heat, but not enough to get warm. Yeah. Uh, I think that will be a, a uh, hermeneutical key for reading Sacra Sanctum. How do we get nearer to liturgy so that my faith life, my mystical life, my spiritual life isn't personally uh, created, idiosyncratically formed, or this is what I think when mm-hmm. I think about God. No, it's formed by the liturgical life of the Church, and my uh, spiritual life should be conformed to the um, mysteries that are being celebrated sacramentally, liturgically. So my connection between a sacramental liturgy and a mystical liturgy, done corporately, done personally, etc. Yeah, and these are not just uh, projections of our experience. They're things we are are there that we enter into. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes the uh, fathers used the word koinonia to uh, translate... Sometimes the word koinonia, as used by the fathers, could be translated as um, participation. But you know, the other translation of koinonia is fellowship. Right. What the liturgical movement wants is full, active, and conscious fellowship with the Trinity. This is the God uh, Almighty uh, extending himself. I tried once to uh, boil down 50 gallons of sap into one gallon of syrup and put as tight a definition on liturgy as I could. I'm uh, trying to get famous for it, but so far nobody's noticed. <laughs> Give it. To, let me hear it. I think uh, liturgy is the perichoresis of the Trinity, canonically extended to invite our synergistic ascent into deification. Uh, it doesn't quite trip off the tongue very easily. <laughs> no, uh, and I told my class uh, ended just uh, two weeks ago that um, I may have to uh, go for T-shirts to uh, get this to work. And one of them just today sent me one that they had written up by somebody. My idea is that the uh, Trinity circulation of love turns itself outward, both in creation and in redemption. We don't start liturgy. The Trinity is the ignition that gets the liturgical engine rolling. And then in humility, the Son and the Spirit work the Father's good pleasure for all of creation. And what is it that the Father wants? It's to invite our ascent into koinonia, participation, friendship with the very life of God. Mm. That can't be forced. It has to be done with our cooperation. That's what the word synergy entails. 
But the uh, tradition has always named two purposes in liturgy, the glorification of God and the sanctification of man. And the former happens when the latter is accomplished. God is glorified when human beings are deified, sanctified, uh, redeemed, brought up. So liturgy is this swoosh from heaven to earth and back up again, the way uh, Dionysius talks about the ladder of hierarchy, which is another word that's uh, even more badly understood than liturgy. Hmm. And the uh, descent of God in agape stimulates and invites and elicits our responsive uh, ascent with Eucharistia. That's the liturgical cycle. Kids learn about the water cycle in grade school. Well, here in the catechism class, this is the liturgical cycle. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, in liturgy, uh, are we learning, um, we're connecting God's purposes in both creation and redemption? Are mm-hmm. his purposes different in creation than they are in redemption? I think not. Uh, people have that idea, plan A failed, right. and so now he's gone on to plan B. Right. Uh, one theologian put it nicely that redemption is the completion of creation, nice. and creation is the beginning of redemption. Yeah. Yeah. It's true that now redemption has to deal with sin, and I guess that's why we uh, feel the uh, sudden jerk, the kind of a jarring right. uh, move when uh, we go from the creation economy to the redemption economy. Mm-hmm. But God has not changed his plans. Uh, from the very beginning, his secret plan in the mind of God, uh, now I'm uh, quoting John Chrysostom's uh, sermons on Ephesians, the mind of God from the beginning was to have mankind seated up on high, yeah. seated beside him, to be able to ascend the flow of liturgy, which comes from the side of Christ, pierced by the soldier's spear. We swim up Christ's blood flow like a salmon swimming upstream into the heart of Christ so that we can be seated uh, in the, amidst the perichoresis of the Trinity. Mm. And that's uh, us joining in the glorification, uh, the intra-Trinitarian glorification that's uh, going on. Wow. Well, that's as that's a big a definition as I could uh, think of. And now I'm just trying to understand my, what I meant. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, listening to you uh, has to make any of us want to immediately uh, go to Mass and understand better what's happening uh, with us there. Thank you so much, uh, Professor, and uh, I hope we can talk again in the future. My pleasure. Thank you. Professor David Fagerberg, Liturgical Mysticism.